Absence makes the heart grow fonder. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before, but maybe you've never felt it quite like this before. I, I have a sense that we're all feeling it as a community, as a church family, in a way that, that we never have. See, this, this time right now has limited our ability to be together, of course, but the longer it carries on, it's not just physical and social separation that hurts us, that, that aches us. There's something deeper at the heart level that I, I trust that we're all feeling, that we're all now uh, longing for more and more. And so what's possible, at least for me, I know it's true, that I, I've all these things I've taken for granted up until now, I've started to get new perspective on. Uh, so I like, for instance, I can't wait to have uh, my family sitting at five guys eating cheeseburgers. Again, that's our kid's favorite place to go eat. Uh, we can't wait to be able to open up our home again and have friends over for a meal. Uh, we can't wait to drive to Texas or over to, uh, to East Mississippi to, to visit our family again. And certainly this is true for me. I hope it's true for you. Uh, we can't wait to be with our church family in person again. Uh, see, absence has made the heart grow fonder. Um, but there's a there's a deeper layer uh, than than just what we see on the surface. Uh, as I said, there's a deeper layer than just social interaction and friendship. Uh, as the church, as those who share the common bond of faith in Christ, we have a fondness for one another that's not just social. It's not just that we miss each other as friends, although I'm, I'm sure we do. I know I do. No, what we have in Christ is a unifying new love for one another, something that resides deep down in the heart and produces a new kind, a unique kind of love. Uh, that's what I want us to see as we begin to walk through the book of Philippians today. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we, as the elders of Harvest Church, Jay and Paul and me, we we made the decision months and months ago to preach through Philippians right after Easter, and I'm so glad that we did. We couldn't have situated this any better. Philippians, all about joy in every circumstance, all about what it means to be the church unified, even when circumstances are adverse. See, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. He's writing it to the people of the church of Philippi. That's in modern-day Greece. But the problem is Paul is in Rome as he writes this letter. He's imprisoned in Rome. He's under house arrest. And so he's writing to people that he cannot see and hug and speak with face to face. Now, these are people that at one point Paul shared the gospel with. We read about it in the book of Acts. But now all he can do, the best he can do, is exchange letters with them. And his heart aches over the distance and so we're going to see this all throughout the letter of Philippians, but especially we see it here at the beginning. How does Paul feel about these people? These people that he only knows uh, just a little. They're not close, personal friends, all of them. Some of them he doesn't know at all. Uh, but he feels a certain way about them, and it just jumps right off the page. And what we see in Paul, of course, I think instructs us as to how we ought to feel. 
about each other in the church. And so we're going to look at it today, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I want to look at the whole scripture all in one piece here before we break it down a little bit. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Uh, a couple of details that I, I don't want us to overlook. As Paul begins this letter, he's the lone author of the letter. Everything he says is me and my and I through the letter, but he includes Timothy with him in the greeting. And that's going to make more sense in chapter 2. We'll get there in a few weeks. But for right now, notice how Paul and Timothy identify themselves. He says, we are bondservants of Christ Jesus. Y'all, a bondservant is a form of slave. Typically someone who has chosen to submit themselves in servanthood to another person. And I, I bring that up, honestly, with some trepidation, because I recognize the risk of slave language. Slavery, as we know it, is a horrible, godless thing. But as Paul speaks of it, he's saying something quite different. As a bondservant belongs to another person to do that person's will, so we, Paul says, we belong to Christ. And our, li our lives are devoted to, to serving him, doing his will. See, this is where Paul takes what might otherwise be uh, an offensive idea, and he makes it uniquely Christian. He turns it on its head. Uh, to be a bondservant of Jesus is the highest honor there is. That's what Paul is trying to communicate here. It's not servitude in a way that demeans and dehumanizes Paul. No, he wears it as a badge of honor. It's an honor to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It doesn't lower Paul and make him less than. It elevates, it esteems, it is his glory that he gets to belong to Jesus Christ and serve his good and perfect will. And that is for us something to consider. We are bondservants of Christ. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. And that is not an ugly, demeaning thing. That is an honor that God would love us and welcome us into his good and perfect will as his servants. Now, we'll see this as we go. We're not servants merely. We're family. But to be a bondservant of Christ is a good thing, something we ought to wear proudly. And then we see Paul's audience. You see it in verse 1. He says, To all the saints 
in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And you notice very quickly, saint here does not refer to some special class of exalted Christians. All Christians are saints. The entire church is in view here. Because of Christ, because we are in Christ, we are saints. We are holy ones set apart by God himself. And then in verse 2, we get Paul's uh, wish for them. He's introduced himself. He's addressed his audience. And now he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be yours in all abundance from the good hand of the Lord. Isn't that a greeting right there? See, when I, when I send an email or a text, I usually start off with, hey guys, and I just feel like Paul's got me beat. Paul greets with a posture that is very um, Christ-centered and Christ-exalting. How Paul sees himself, a bondservant of Christ, how he sees the church, you are saints in Christ Jesus, and I wish you all grace and peace from the Lord who gives these things in abundance. Wow. Well, it only gets better, actually, from here. We've seen the greeting now. Look at Paul's affirmation in verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, Paul is writing this letter under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard even as he writes. Wouldn't you think Paul has enough to worry about all on his own? I mean, the situation that he finds himself in. He surely has enough stress, enough concern, enough problems of his own. But you notice what he's doing. Look at, I mean, what, what is he communicating in verse 3? He says, I'm constantly remembering you. I'm constantly thanking God for you. Always offering prayer for you with great joy. That Paul's mindset, his mentality is not self-centered. Yes, he's got problems to deal with. Yes, he's got circumstances working in, against him. And yet his every thought, it seems, is to Christ and to the Lord's people. All the time, I remember you. I thank God for you. I pray for you with joy. See, in the midst of Paul's circumstances, he is consumed with love for and prayer for others. He takes joy in the good of others. And that, that for me, is a, a massive um, challenge and encouragement. And I would st just stop and, and think about this for a second. Does my heart reflect Paul's heart here in Philippians 1? Do I have people in my life that I remember regularly with joy and gratitude, and I pray fervently for them. Not just periodically, but regularly. Now, some of us do. Some of us certainly, we, we feel that way about our family. We pray and we thank God and we ask the Lord for grace for our family, and that's a good thing. Uh, others of us have people outside of our family that we regularly think about and and thank the Lord for and and pray on their behalf. 
but I think the truth for a lot of us is that, uh, that this kind of consideration, this kind of remembrance and gratitude and prayer uh, is, is not central to how we think. It's not central to how we spend our time or how we view other people. And, and for me, the, the, the craziness of all this is that Paul does not live in Philippi. He's not talking about people that he's close in proximity to, that he sees all the time, and therefore he feels a certain way. No, Paul's 800 miles away. Paul barely knows most of these people, and some of them surely he doesn't know at all, and yet it's his joy to pray for them. Philippi was not the only church that Paul cared about. He cared about Rome, of course, the church in Rome, and Caesarea, and Ephesus, and Thessalonica, and yet Paul's concern for the church of Philippi uh, jumps off the page. This was a man who loved these people and had a heart for them that, that for us, frankly, is, it's hard to quantify. I need, I want what, what Paul has here. I want to pray like he prays. I want to feel what he feels. And so that just brings the question. Where does this kind of heart come from? This kind of prayerful, loving, grateful, joyful heart? Well, Paul actually gives us some clues. Uh, one of the clues comes to us in verse 5. He says, I feel gratitude and joy when I pray for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, my love for you, my prayer for you, my joy, my gratitude, those things are built on something that we share together. It's your participation in the gospel of Jesus. Paul is saying our shared faith in Christ, our shared love for Christ produces a new kind of love among us, something we participate in together. That's what changes the game. That's what changes the conversation. Now, I, this is a scripture that I, I bring up often because I think it's so foundational for the Christian life. Uh, it's, it's one that I would encourage us all to memorize. John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, that command... Uh, isn't really new. I mean, that's Old Testament stuff right there. We're told in the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Loving each other, that's, that's not new. But then we come to realize what Jesus is saying is actually new. It's actually different. Because Jesus does not set the standard as that which occurs in my own heart. Think about it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What if everybody in the world started really doing that? Y'all, the world would be transformed in a week if everybody loved their neighbor as themselves. Because we love ourselves. We care for ourselves. We esteem and value ourselves. Oh my goodness, we all do it. So if I loved everybody that way, it would change the world. But what Jesus is actually saying in John 13 is not love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying love each other as I have loved you. And that's what makes this new. Jesus is redefining the standard. Not that the old standard was bad or lacking, 
but that there is a divine love that comes from Jesus Christ that has been experienced by these disciples, that's what now defines you. That's what now fuels the way you love each other. You take the love that you've been given by the very person of Jesus Christ, and now you love one another in kind. See, for those, for those who are in Christ, which means you are part of the church, we are now meant to love each other in view of or in light of the gospel of Jesus. It's, it's this new love revealed to us in the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior that now defines us and drives us. This is who we are. That's why Jesus concludes in John 13. He says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so th this, is, this is the key. This is the, the, the foundation that, that gives Paul the kind of love we witness in his letter. And forgive me for cheating ahead. We're going to skip past verse 6 in Philippians 1. We're going to come back to it. I, wanna, I want you to see how Paul concludes the thought, because he does that in verses 7 and 8. So Paul says, For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The Philippians were not actually in jail with Paul, of course. But you know, he speaks as though they were. I mean, the way Paul speaks about these people to these people, it's as if they're right there together in the living room. They are with him, he says. They are partakers of grace with him in his imprisonment, in his defense of the gospel. Because, listen, the Philippians were not ashamed of Paul's imprisonment. If the leader of your movement you found out was in prison 800 miles away, that may, for you, uh, be a deterrent I don't know if I'm sure about this guy. I'm not sure if I'm going to identify with him because I don't want to catch the flag. I don't want to be, be thrown in with this guy in terms of how I'm viewed. I don't want to be persecuted because I'm friends with him. Right? That could have been their attitude. But no, they have not broken ties with Paul. They, they're not afraid of being persecuted just like he is. They're standing with him. They're supporting him. They're praying for him. They're sending him help. And so this is more than Paul. Paul's not saying right there, well, I'm just so glad we happen to share all the same beliefs. That'd be one thing they have in common, sure. But Paul is not talking to them as acquaintances, as fellow club members. He speaks to them as beloved family because that's what they are to him. That's how he sees them, brothers and sisters because of Christ. And that explains, I think, the over-the-top emotional just explosion we see in verse 8. He says, God is my witness. God knows my heart. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Clearly, Paul wishes that he could go see these people and put his arms around them and hug them. I think that's clear. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? Oh, but verse 8 is more than that. He's not just lamenting social distance. 
Paul says, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. You know, that word affection is literally the word bowels. The, it, it, what it, it's referring to the very deepest part of me from which I feel a certain way. I feel love for someone. That's the way it was understood in the Greek language that Paul is writing. And so he says the affection of Christ Jesus from the very deepest part of what I am, of who I am, I yearn for you. I long for you. Now that can be, honestly, maybe a little uncomfortable kind of language right there. I want you to consider what Paul's saying. Two quick things before we move on. Paul's longing and affection for these people comes from Jesus. It's produced by Jesus. Notice he says it's the affection of Christ that he has for them. And that goes, again, that goes back to John 13. We love one another in like manner to how Christ has loved us. And so his desire is fueled from a divine source. It's not just Paul's heart here. It's a new heart given to him in Christ that has a love for these people. That's, it's just, it's new, it's unique. But then secondly, Paul, he's longing for them, he says. He's not just longing to see them. Certainly that's understood. But he's longing for, for something to happen in them and among them. He wants more of Jesus for them. We'll, we'll, we're going to see that in the way he prays, verses 9, 10, and 11 next week. But for today, we understand Paul's love for these people is a love for their standing in Christ. He loves what they are because of Jesus, and he wants them to see and feel and know and experience more of Christ. And so Paul, Paul is communicating, I want more than just friendship from you. I want the best for you. And of course, that's what friendship ultimately is. True friendship. How do you know if you have a true friend? A true friend doesn't just like what you can give them, but they want the best for you, even if it costs them to give it, right? That's love. And so Paul is saying, I long for you with all the affection of Christ. He's saying, I want the very best of all God's graces for you, that you might experience them right where you are. I have you in my heart, but I love you with the heart of Christ as much as that's possible. So these, these points are going to keep coming up as we go through Philippians. I'm going to try to stop beating the horse at this point, but I hope the point is clear. This kind of love, this affection, this joy that we're meant to feel for one another, only Jesus himself can produce this. It's not something that we merely feel in a, a socially um, uh, affectionate kind of way, that we enjoy each other's company. That's not all. This is the, this is the foundation upon which we stand that we share. It's Jesus Christ producing this in us and among us. And so we ought to pray that God would do this in our hearts individually and collectively. If I, the question I asked earlier, if I don't feel for others the way Paul feels in these verses, 
then I ought to long for that. I shouldn't just say, well, you know, Paul must have been more touchy-feely, affectionate kind of person. I don't think he was. I don't think that was necessarily his nature. It didn't come across that way before his conversion. He was quite savage. Now, what happened in Paul can and should happen in us day by day. But Jesus Christ fosters in our hearts a love for one another that's like a mirror image of his love for us. Let's pray for that. Let's long for that. Now, there was no way I was going to skip verse 6 and just forget about it. I mentioned a minute ago I kind of cheated around it. Let's come back to it. Because verse 6, even though it feels a little bit out of place almost in the, in the midst of Paul's greeting, verse 6 is meant to be a pillar for the book of Philippians, but it's also a pillar for your whole life. If you are a Christian, then what Philippians 1.6 says is something that you, you build a life upon. I really mean that. And that's why I encourage you to memorize it. So that's, I'm giving you all homework today. I hope that's okay. Uh, John 13, 34, Philippians 1, 6. Commit these things to our memory. They'll bless you forever. But here's what's happening. At the end of verse 5, Paul mentions the Philippians have participated in the gospel from the first day until now. What I think Paul means there is, from the first day you heard and received the gospel, when you became Christians, until today, until now, you have been standing firm in the grace of God. But in verse 6, Paul wants to extend that idea much further. It's not just past and present, it's future. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I also love the way the ESV translation puts it. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Y'all, this is a statement of assurance. Paul is certain of something that he wants us to be certain of as well. That God who began a good work in you, what does that mean? He's talking about our salvation. I mean, plain and simple, that's what the essence is. For God to begin a good work is his saving grace upon you. God began it. Meaning, God brought your salvation about entirely of his own making and doing. It was his gracious choice, it was his execution, he saw it through, and he brought it about. It's an act of grace, 100%. We bring nothing to the table at all. He began that good work. And Paul says he began that work in you. you know, salvation is more than just what God does for you in sending Jesus Christ for us to die for our sins, yes, but he also began a good work in you, within you. The scripture tells us that God's very spirit now dwells in us by faith. And so, y'all, salvation cannot mean that somewhere far away in heaven, God has checked the box with your name beside it. In some very impersonal kind of way, God has checked the box and you're good. Praise him for that, that your name is, is recorded correctly in heaven, and one day you're going to cash it in. Uh, that's not how the Bible presents our salvation. 
No, it, what it means, what salvation means, is that God is powerfully at work in you to save you through the grace of Jesus, powerfully at work, yes, but he's also personally at work in you to make you more and more like Jesus. Salvation is not cashing in at the end. Salvation is a work already begun that God brings to completion. You see that? That God started the work in you and he will complete it. He will perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. That's the assurance here. That not only did God start it, but God finishes it. God finishes what he begins. And this finished work will occur one day yet future at the return of Christ. He's not finished yet, but that day is coming. Listen to how the, the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1. This is verse 8. Paul says, Jesus will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to just I want to take a moment here that we might look at this verse, look at Philippians 1.6, look at what we just read in 1 Corinthians, and plant the truth here deep down into the soil of our hearts. That's where it belongs. This is not something that we hold on to lightly that we can take or leave. This is foundational truth for what it means to know God. First, what Paul is saying, that by faith in Christ, you are secure. You are secure. Our salvation is entirely the work of God who sent his son to us and for us. By Jesus's death on the cross, our sins are forgiven. We are adopted by God as his own dear children. And because Jesus rose from the grave, he imparts his glorious eternal life to us as well. All, all this comes from God. All of it. And Paul says, I know that God began it, and therefore he will perfect it. If he started it, he will finish it. That means if you have faith in Jesus Christ, your salvation cannot be lost. You cannot undo what God has done for all eternity. You cannot compromise God's decree and promise. He began it of his own gracious choice, his will, his love, his mercy. He'll finish it. We can rest in that. We don't have to finish what God began. He's got it. And then secondly, this is the work of God in you, right? That, that first point, you are secure because of what God does for you. He will do it on your behalf. But it's God's work in you as well. It's, it's not, salvation is not just our forgiveness transaction. There is a living grace that transforms us. And this is a point that Paul is going to make over and again in Philippians. We'll see it next week. The transforming grace of Jesus that doesn't just stamp us for heaven, but brings new life in the here and now. Paul's going to tell us that God takes good pleasure 
in the work he does in you. In you. The Spirit of God is personally invested in you. God is not indifferent to us. Sealing us for salvation isn't that nice, but he doesn't really care about the goings-on of our daily life. Oh my goodness, no. God is personally invested in your life. He sent his own spirit to dwell in your heart. And so God, God does not just sprinkle good things down from heaven. He actually comes and makes a home in our hearts. And so, listen, if John, the Apostle John says, if God so loved us, and he did, he loved us enough to, break, to make us secure in our salvation. He finishes what he starts. He loves us enough to come and dwell in us by his spirit and perform a great transforming work in our hearts. If God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. The two can't be separated. And that's what I want us to see right today in Philippians chapter 1. Paul affirms God's grace and love for us. And Paul expresses his loving and gracious heart for the people of Philippi, because those two things naturally flow together. And, and so I'm, let's, let's kind of come back to, this, to the start here. Uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? We're feeling that. We know that right now. Um, and I'm ready, I'm ready to, <laughs> I'm ready to go back to normal. And I know that may not be uh, even possible at this point, or normal at least may change considerably between now and when that day comes. Sure. But I, I'll tell you guys, I'm ready to get back to church. Not because I so enjoy uh, all the practical functions of the church. Not even because I enjoy preaching, although I do. No, I want to get back to church because I like you guys. I mean, I really mean that. I genuinely like you. I enjoy being around you. I crave to be back in your presence because I consider you friends, not just acquaintances. Uh, you know, the church is not a business with clientele. We are friends who enjoy each other and who delight to be together. I like having our kids run around the building together. It's a wonderful thing that I so miss and I'm ready to experience again. Yes. But the true nature of the church runs much deeper than just that. And that's the point we've been making all morning. It's more than just social togetherness. It's more than just we miss each other and we want to be close again. No, there's a deeper layer to all of this, and this is our prayer. This is a reflection, I hope, of Paul's prayer for Philippi. That just like Paul, like we see him in the early verses of this chapter, that our prayer should be this. Our longing for each other is not built upon our own hearts merely, but our longing for each other is with the affection of Christ. We are friends, yes, praise God, but we are also family, a family not of flesh and blood, but we are the children of a heavenly Father, and therefore we are brothers and sisters who partake of the grace of God together. And y'all, that is very spiritual language, I understand. But that is the essence of what it is to be the church. That we are no longer scattered individuals who find common bonds together through shared interests. No, that's a social club. The church is made up of those 
who are participants in the gospel. We have come to faith in Christ Jesus, and therefore we have been fused together at the heart to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so especially in this time of social distancing, I want us to ask the Lord to stir our hearts in this way. Not just a desire to get back together. I know we've got that. But that we would have a renewed affection for each other. An affection not established on love your neighbor as yourself, good as that is. But an affection established on what we have received from, the, from Christ Jesus. What we have been given, a love beyond comprehension. That that would now be how we love one another. And the only way I think we'll get there, truly, is to pray and sincerely ask the Lord for it. And so I'd like to lead us in that prayer right now. Father, thank you for the, the clear and abundant truth of today's scripture. That, that what Paul felt for the church in Philippi was not just... Paul being an especially loving person. But this is the new love, the new affection, the new devotion that comes because of Christ. It, it comes because of what Paul and these people share together, even though they are far apart. Uh, and so, Father, I ask this morning for myself and for us together that we would be the kind of people who do not shy away from this, this thought um, that we don't, you know, that we don't see this as too uh, touchy-feely and affectionate, but that we sincerely look into uh, the, the, the beauty of this, that we have a new heart and a new love, a new way of seeing one another and a new way of uh, community, of family. And it ought to stir us, it ought to excite us, it ought to change us. Lord, let me be the first to admit that I, I very easily rely on my own feelings, good or bad, great or small. I too easily rely on just how I feel about people in my natural uh, kind of way. And, and I don't see people as I should. I don't see my fellow brothers and sisters always as I should, the way that Paul sees the Philippians. And Father, I want that to change. I want my heart to be changed. I want to love well as you have loved me so I would love others. Lord, I trust that we all need um, transformation in this, that we all need strengthening and, and grace um, to cover our hearts in this. Lord, I know we don't always love as we should, but Lord, this is the light that comes to the darkened world. By this, the world will know that we are your disciples by the love we have for one another. And so, Lord, bring it about in our hearts and make us long for each other, yearn for each other with the affection of Christ. Lord, teach us what that means, that we might be the kind of people that whether near or far physically, that we love each other well because we have been loved supremely by our Savior. And it's in his wonderful, precious, mighty name we ask these things.